Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our December uh, construction webinar. Uh, it's the final one for the year. My name is Tashi Rasul. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm, where I uh, oversee a team that handles only uh, construction claims, that is workers' compensation claims that arise out of construction accidents. That's my specialty here. I'm also the author of the firm's uh, construction defense handbook, which is a plain English handbook on unique issues and some of the laws that come into play in defending uh, the workers' compensation claims that arise out of construction accidents. If you've been following me all along, thank you for joining me here today. If you're here for the very first time, welcome. I do these webinars the first Monday of every month. Every month is a different topic. I also take suggestions for topics that uh, you may want to hear about or for us to explore. Um, this is a live session. At the end, there will be um, a Q&A oh, session. Um, you can type your an, uh, question into the box and I'll provide uh, an answer as long as we have time. If not, I can get back to you later with an answer. Today we're going to wrap up, and I'll just go back here for a second, um, the year talking about calculating exposure in du dual jurisdiction claims. We are going to talk about the reason why we're we're having coordination in multi-jurisdictional claims to begin with, right? Talking to um, both your workers' comp and your general defense, general liability defense counsel. We've been talking about the importance of collaboration and the main importance, the, the, the main reason um, for collaboration is to reduce exposure. So today we're going to talk about how to calculate that exposure. We'll talk about the factors to be taken into consideration when calculating the exposure. We'll talk about Kelly and Burns, our favorite topic. And we'll talk about how to calculate some of the exposures. I'm not going to go into details about how to crunch the numbers, but I do have some worksheets. If you're interested in them, send me an email after and I can send over the worksheets to you. And like I mentioned, it's a Q&A session in the end. The box looks like this. You'll type your question in there. Hopefully, they'll pop up at my end, and I'll provide an answer for you. All right, so let's get into it. What are the factors to be considered in the workers' compensation end? Now, I'll say, every now and then, uh, one of my colleagues uh, who is probably newer to doing this would come up to me and say, how do you calculate exposure in the workers' comp claim? How do you calculate exposure when there's a general liability claim? And my first inclination to say, well, I don't know, it's just based on experience, right? But there's really some things behind the experience that we always look at and that we should always look at, especially when there is a general liability component. So in the workers' comp end, we're looking at the claimant's demographics, his age, uh, prior injuries, uh, underlying conditions that he may have that even if you're, you're not responsible for it in your claim could come into play in terms of determining uh, future potential exposure. A younger claimant, you know, more, more likely to go back to work, so your exposure would be less, presumably. An older claimant who is close to the age of retirement, well, you know, they probably don't have any desire to go back to work at that time, and your exposure could be higher because of that. Whether an MSA is needed, this goes towards the medical portion of it. How many surgeries have the claimants had? Uh, what are the underlying conditions, again, that could impact whether the claimant 
needs treatment now or we're going to have to wait several months until he can uh, resolve the underlying condition to get the treatment, which we would have to factor into um, under future medical costs, and that would be part of the MSA also. We need to know um, the claimant has the claimant applied for Social Security benefits. Uh, it, it, was he denied? Is an appeal pending? Is he Medicare eligible? Is he receiving Medicare? All of the information we would need to know to determine whether an MSA is actually necessary. Apportionment opportunities. This is something that's quite, uh, quite often forgotten. If there is a potential for apportionment in your claim, even though you're considering settlement, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take apportionment into consideration. When you're negotiating with your adversary, you should be saying, listen, we're going to be pursuing apportionment at the time of permanency, and we're saying it's going to be 50-50 or 60-40, and we think we're going to be successful in the apportionment argument. So this is all we'll really be liable for if we were to be successful with apportionment. So come on, let's be real, let's settle this claim for what it's really worth for what you know we're liable for. So definitely keep in mind apportionment opportunities. I've seen more and more of my clients are um, thinking about apportionment in terms of reducing their exposure, and I think that's a really good thing. I think you can get, especially in the occupational disease claims, um, which generally don't have a general liability component, but we're seeing more and more of them in the construction claims, you can certainly get apportionment, especially when the claimant has worked for your insured for a week, and then the, you're, you're stuck liable with the claim. Well, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of working in the industry, you shouldn't be responsible for all of it. So definitely think about apportionment there. With regards to the medical status, these are the things that we should be looking for. Is the claimant actively treating? If the claimant hasn't treated in months or a year or two years, then there's really no value um, as it pertains to the medical portion of your, your exposure. He hasn't been treating, he's returned to work, he doesn't need the treatment. Um, we shouldn't be putting aside a lot of money for this if, if any significant amount. Uh, surgeries that the claimant underwent. I mean, surgeries are supposed to make claimants better, but do they really? You know, in the workers' comp world, the doctor is still opined that because of a surgery, the claimant has a high impairment, which defies logic, but that's, that's what we're facing in workers' comp, right? So if the claimant has had surgery, and especially if he hasn't improved after, like really improved after surgery, we could be faced with a higher potential maybe um, a, high, a higher potential exposure maybe for a repeat surgery or maybe something went wrong or something like that um, that has diminished his ability to return to work. Any recommended or planned treatment? So if you're starting to think about settlement and the doctor is recommending a surgery or injections, um, even if our IME is recommending it, we should be taking that into consideration when calculating exposure because you would, could ultimately be liable for it. Medications. Prescription medications really, really drive up the cost of um, these workers' compensation claims, especially when the doctors are prescribing um, the narcotics and, you know, we have to go through like the weaning process and so forth. If we're not there yet and we're still paying for the narcotics and any other prescription medications, um, we should be taking that into consideration. If the, the cost of the medication is so exorbitant that it could be prohibitive to settlement, I think we should we should be considering some kind of a weaning program, getting an eye need to comment on it so as to reduce your exposure there also.
Also to keep in mind an MSA, if you are if if you do need to get the MSA, it is going to take into consideration the cost of future prescription medications, and that is usually a big portion of the MSA if the claimant is on a bunch of meds. The most recent IME report, we should be using it to our benefit. Hopefully, it's one that is, you know, finding the claimant can return to work, it's close to permanency, finding a, per, uh, you know, MMI, and it'll help us to negotiate what, what uh, in, in accordance with the IME and a lower settlement. Um, if we have not had an IME for a while and the claimant's doctors are still finding him to be total, and you know, you're paying at the total rate and we're not getting anywhere close to permanency, you might want to consider getting an updated IME before entering into settlement negotiations because one of the pushbacks you're going to face is the claimant's attorney saying, well, my doctor is saying a total, my doctor is saying no MMI for another year, and he's recommending all of this additional treatment. So our $400,000 demand is reasonable and we have nothing to counter. So an IME report is extremely important. It's our medical evidence. Um, it's important in countering whatever exorbitant demand the claimant's going to come with. And it's almost always exorbitant. They're never reasonable with their demands. Okay. The overall status of the claim. We should be looking at the claimant's return to work status. Did he return? Did he return for a period of time that needed surgery and he's back to work? Um, did he stop working because of some other reason, um, also known as unrelated wage loss? This is something that should be taken into consideration. If the claimant is out of work, is he out of work because of his injury? Uh, if he's not out of work because of his injury, if he's out of work because of a a different condition that's not covered by our claim or you know some other underlying condition for example maybe a cardiac issue or something like that you should not be liable for lost wages for that and that goes into your exposure any fraud finding i mean these construction claims we've been seeing so many fraudulent claims you know the word word goes around you know i i we, we've seen claims where the claimant's not on the job site didn't show up to work on the day he's claiming the accident was laid off because there was no more worker for underperformance and is still filing the claims. And because of the the, the way the workers' comp system is um, designed and you know all the notable uh, adversaries, the plaintiff's bar, like they're all talking to each other, filing the claims, and you know, we're fighting them one at a time. But whenever there's a an inkling of some kind of a misrepresentation, Pursuing fraud and any potential uh, fraud findings would really, really reduce your exposure. Just a couple of weeks ago, my office had um, a finding of fraud in a construction claim. Uh, benefits were rescinded for the prior, prior two years and ongoing benefits were suspended. Immediately after the, the board panel upheld the decision, we received a demand. It was, it was a pretty nominal demand. They just wanted to close the claim and get out of it. And that's really important, right? Some adversaries might try to still negotiate settlement while an appeal is pending. If you think you have a really good fraud case, or even if you don't, but it was in your favor, and the fact that there was an appeal pending, I think you should use that to your benefit to negotiate a lower settlement. Any permanency findings or potential permanency findings? Here we're talking about the permanency reports. If we have an IME or the claimant has a C4.3, we can also predict what the permanency findings are going to be depending on the claimant's um, 
most recent report or the most recent IME or um, you know the way the treatment's been going from experience we can review them we know the doctors we're like all right this is going to come in as a table 11.1 class 3b um, you know so we're going to use that to try to negotiate any settlement but again at the end of the day it's better to have those permanency reports unless unless we know that a permanency report could significantly impair our position or negotiation and settlement. So for the majority of the cases that we handle where there is a construction accident, there is a third party claim. We refer to them as a general liability claim. Um, there are some factors from the, uh, from the general liability claim that we should be taken into consideration, right? Because we are coordinating, we're collaborating, we're talking about global settlements, trying to close out both the workers' comp and the general liability claim at the same time. So in pricing your workers' comp claim or pricing whether you should do or making a determination as to whether you should do a lien waiver or, you know, a partial lien waiver, we should be thinking about what's going on in the general liability claim. Talk to your um, GL defense attorney. Let, let them tell you what the strengths and that of the liability and the damages claim are. What are they valuing it? Do they think they have a strong case? Jurisdiction. This is, this is a really big and important factor in your GL claims. You'll hear your defense counsel talking about, well, it's in the Bronx, it's in Queens. This is what we expect in this jurisdiction. And that comes into play a lot because the verdicts in some jurisdictions are just much, much higher than in other jurisdictions. So we need to know about that. Surgeries. Surgeries drive your general liability claim. It still blows my mind how much these surgeries are worth on the general liability side. You know, the fusions, uh, the back fusions, neck fusions, even the arthroscopies, um, they, they really drive up your claim. So we need to know what's going on and we need to prevent those surgeries from happening on the workers' comp side also. Something to keep in mind if there is a pending surgery or if there was a surgery that was actually denied by the board, that's an important fact for your general liability counsel to know, right? Because it's been litigated, it was denied, and it's no longer part of the workers' comp claim. We shouldn't be liable for it. They'll use it the best that they can on their end to leverage settlements. What is the potential exposure on the general liability side? You know, if, if my general liability counterpart is telling me that the potential exposure is $10 million, or he's telling me it's $500,000, that gives me an idea of what I should be doing in my workers' comp claim also, right? How are they valuing it? If that's the case, if, if, it's more, it's, if it's more so on the lower end, $500,000, then I shouldn't be settling my workers' comp claim for three or $400,000. I shouldn't ever be settling my workers' comp claim for three or $400,000. I don't think they're worth that much anyway. So these are all factors we need to know, we need to talk about, we need to brainstorm, we need to uh, crunch the numbers in order to determine what, you know, where, where are we going with settlement. So let's move into talking about um, how to calculate exposure. So there are two lines of exposure. There's the indemnity and there's the medical. We should be taking into consideration prior payments, especially when there's an SLU situation going on. For the indemnity line, there is the SLU and there's an LWEC case. The SLU are the limbs, right? The shoulders, the knees, the feet, and so forth. For those claims, 
you take it, you get credit for all of the prior payments made. So let's just say the SLU comes back at $100,000, but you paid out $85,000 in the claim. The only money that the claimant is really entitled to would be the balance of the $15,000. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that for LWEC. The, the, the prior payments made, um, a 20% LWEC, a 50, 60, 70%, that's what the claimant's going to be entitled to, or you're not getting any credit for any prior payments. Um, Again, with this, you should be relying on the doctor's reports. You should have an eye in your report to, 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 to have as support, um, as guidance, and you should be using it to um, negotiate, your, your, negotiate your settlement. Um, if we don't have an eye in your report, we should be using the claimant's report as your worst case scenario. Because, listen, if your IME is coming back telling you worse than your uh, worse than what the claimant's doctor is saying, we shouldn't be using that IME anymore. It should come in at less than what the claimant's doctor is saying. So we use the claimant's doctor, uh, claimant's doctor's report as um, a worst case scenario in calculating your exposure. One of the things that you know I see that a lot of clients aren't doing on a consistent basis is using the impairment guidelines to cross-check the permanency reports, whether it be the claimant's permanency report or the IME report, and I'm talking about before we get to depositions, if it's before, if we're trying to settle before we get to depositions. The reason I'm saying it's important is because you might have a C4.3 come in with very high permanency rankings, but then you're looking at the report and you're looking at the examination findings and checking it against the impairment guidelines. You're like, wait, this doctor's findings are really much higher than they should be. We have an IME. On the flip side, sometimes the IME comes in and it has higher than it, you know the, the actual objective and subjective evidence show. And that can be used when you're talking to your adversary about settlement. Be like, listen, your doctor is finding you know, a, a sedentary level that a claimant can do sedentary level work. However, the examination and the notes do not reflect that. So if we're going to talk about settlement, we should be talking about something less than a 75% marked disability or, you know, a, a, PP, uh, a PTD. Um, so definitely keep in mind, use the impairment guidelines. I think this is something that's sometimes forgotten by the time we get the settlement, but your attorneys should be reviewing the medical reports against them to see if there's anything there you can use for leverage. For SLU cases, if there hasn't been a finding, an SLU finding, um, I'm sorry, if there has been an SLU finding, then there would be no additional money for indemnity, right? Because the SLU presumably has been paid out. The claim is the indemnity portion is closed, only the medical is open. Now we're trying to settle. There should be zero dollars more for indemnity. The, um, the exposure there would be the medicals. Honestly, I think I've seen one SLU claim in my entire career doing this for over 10 years now, um, where the claimant continues to treat after he gets his SLU, right? Because generally they get their SLU, they go back to work, they don't need to collect indemnity benefits, they don't need medicals to support benefits anymore, so they're not treating anymore. Uh, if they do, however, continue to treat or something comes up, there's a change in condition or anything like that, then um, that would be your potential exposure on the claim. For LWEC, if there has been a finding, we have to take the um, 
the amount of LWEC paid out already, meaning if the claimant was found to have a 65% LWEC the last the, the six months ago, when you're calculating your exposure today, definitely deduct six months worth of payments you've made since the finding has been made because the claimant has gotten that already. However, as I mentioned earlier, you're not gonna get to take credit for any payments made before the LWEC finding. However, the ones made since the LWEC finding, you definitely get that credit. Do not give the claimant you know, an additional six months as part of your settlement. Your medical exposure, um, I briefly touched on this before. So what is the anticipated cost for the recommended or planned treatment? I mean, we always hope for an IME to come back saying no further treatment is needed. Once in a while it does because the claimant may actually need it. Let's take into consideration what, what is that going to cost? And we should be thinking about the cost according to the um, medical fee schedule, right? Not the extra $10,000, $20,000 that the claimant's, attorney, uh, the claimant's doctor is going to bill you for it. We go by the fee schedule. What does that cost? Medications, as I mentioned earlier, will the claimant need medication forever? I mean, you'll be surprised to see how many of his doctors say yes, He'll need this indefinitely. Really? So, you know, all the treatment that you've rendered over the years, nothing is making this claimant better. We need to take that in con into consideration. And again, the MSA. If an MSA is leaded, liability is going to be based on the MSA for these claims. All right, so we've talked about the basics in the workers' comp claim. We've talked a little bit about the general liability claim. We've looked at the factors. Um, that we should be taken into consideration. There's the medical and the indemnity portions. Let's talk a little bit about Section 29, the liens. Now, under Section 29, the workers' comp carrier ha that has paid indemnity and medical benefits has a lien on the proceeds of any third party or the general liability settlement. Okay, how does the lien reimbursement work? So, our favorite people, Kelly, Burns, and Bissell. We hear about them, we talk about them. Let's talk a little bit about what exactly they stand for and how they can actually make our lives easier once we understand them and reduce our exposure. So, Kelly. Kelly addresses indemnity benefits. Burns also addresses indemnity benefits. Bissell addresses medical benefits. We're usually talking about Burns payments whenever we're talking about um, a third-party settlement. That's the most common one. And let's go over the differences and why Kelly is not usually referenced, especially in these construction claims. Okay, so our friend Kelly. <clears throat> Under Kelly, uh, workers' compensation carriers receive two potential benefits from settlement of a third-party action. The first is reimbursement of its current lien, indemnity and medical paid to date, mean everything you've paid from the very beginning of the claim. Where the workers' comp carrier would be responsible for ongoing benefits, then you can take a credit against the payment of the benefits until the third-party settlement is exhausted. This is what Kelly stands for. Kel the, the Kelly case outlines how reimbursement calculations are actually to be made. So this is commonly known as, um, I mean, it's commonly known and we, it, it's commonly factored into like the burns. We're talking about the burns 
and Kelly is not referenced a lot. So this applies in situations where the claimant's future workers' comp benefits are not definite, meaning they're non, they're, I'm sorry, they are definite, meaning they're non-speculative, or a situation where the claimant is no longer receiving any benefits at all. What this means is we know what the claimant is actually entitled to in the future. The, um, these are the death benefits cases. We know exactly um, what, what has to be paid out in a death benefits claim. Uh, schedule loss of use, we know exactly what needs to pay, be paid out when there's a schedule loss of use finding and a permanent total disability. We also know what needs to be paid out. This is when Kelly applies. To do a Kelly calculation, we need to know the gross workers' comp lien, meaning the indemnity and the benefits paid to date. We need to know the present value of the future benefits. So the death benefits, the SLU benefits, the PTD benefits, we crunched the present value. It's just the five, it's usually like a 5% deduction, you know. Um, we go by the ATF guidelines to calculate the, um, the, the present value of the benefits. We also need to know the litigation costs expended in the third-party claim. That is the attorney's fees and disbursements. A lot of times in the global settlements, because we're doing a full lien waiver or, a, or, or an agreed amount of the partial lien waiver, we would just use the general 33.33%. However, it is important to know what the actual percent is if, if you're not doing global settlement for whatever reason. I highly recommend a global settlement, but in some situations it's not feasible if they're separate carriers and so forth. Um, but it's, it's usually a 33.33% in that area. I've seen them as high as maybe like a 36%. I've seen them a little lower, 32, 31%. That's the, that's the amount that's usually referenced when we're talking about burns, and we'll get to there in a second. And so, um, so, so these are the things we need to know when doing the, uh, the, the Kelly calculations. How do we do the actual Kelly calculation? So it's the gross workers' comp lien plus the present value of the future benefits, so the present value of, let's say, the, the, the SLU, uh, less the litigation cost percentage. So that's like a 33.33%. Um, that's how you calculate how much you would owe uh, under how, 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 the how the benefits, the credits would work under Kelly. Now, keep in mind and remember, these apply only to certain situations that is where we know what the future benefits are going to be. SLU, uh, death benefits, permanent total disability. Okay, let's go to burns. This is the one that's going, this is the one that's going through our minds all the time. You know, back and forth in the emails, the conversations, we're talking about the burns credit, the burns credit, the burns credit. What exactly is the burns credit? So burns outlines how the calculations are made when the future benefits are speculative. So, I'm sorry, I have a hard time pronouncing that word. <laughs> but when we don't know what the future benefits is going to be, are really going to be, right? So, it's um, temporary ongoing benefits. This, this can change, right? We can, it, it can increase, it can reduce, the claimant can return to work. Permanent partial disability benefits. This can also change because the claimant can return to work and the claimant's only getting it for, let's say, 350 weeks, he returns to work, then the benefits are gonna stop, it changes, right? That's, that's the main difference between Kelly and Burns. Kelly applies to when we know what the future benefits are gonna be, Burns applies when we don't know, 
100% certain what they're actually going to be. Okay, so unlike Kelly, the benefits are calculated at the time of settlement. I'm sorry, unlike Kelly, where the benefits are calculated at the time of settlement, the benefits here are calculated on an ongoing basis. So this is where, you know, we talk about taking Burns credit. We take it on an ongoing basis. The claimant will continue to receive payment at a reduced rate, the rate being calculated using the Kelly formula. So Kelly also provides us with the formula that is a 33.33%, right? Um, the gross, the it's, it's the cost, the attorney's fees and disbursements that we're using to calculate the percentage. Um, and we're actually using the Kelly calculation in doing the Burns credit. The payments continue until the claimant net settlement amount is exhausted. So once the carry has recouped its, um, its, its payments in, in accordance with the Burns rate, once it's recouped the amount that the claimant has, um, the, the claimant's settlement amount has exhausted, then the carrier can no longer take credit and then the payments are going to continue at the normal rate. So if the carrier was taking, is taking credit for let's say five years and after five years, the amount of the, the total amount of the credit um, amounts to the claimant's third party settlement amount, after the five years, the carrier has to resume payments at the full amount. After the Burns payments are exhausted, the workers' comp, uh, the workers' comp, uh, the workers' comp claim will resume benefits at the full payments, and then it goes, it continues. Generally, though, in these workers, in the construction claims, because the settlements are so high, um, the the carrier might be finished paying for its its share of liability in the workers' comp claim even before um, the, the third party settlement has been exhausted, right? Because they're usually like multi, like millions of dollars. The carrier is only liable for let's say 375 weeks of benefits. After it's done paying those 375 weeks at the reduced rate, at the burdens rate, then they're no longer liable for payments on the file. They've paid everything they need to pay uh, pursuant to the ELWEC finding. Okay, BISL. Bissell speaks to the medicals. The workers' comp carrier would be liable for its equitable share of litigation costs in the future medical treatment. And it's calculated at the burns rate. So burns applies here also, the actual rate. Um, when each treatment, it's so, so it applies when each treatment actually incurs. It's not something you can pay ahead of time because we don't know the treatment that the claimant's actually going to undergo ahead of time, right? And the board, can direct how the reimbursements should work. Generally, the thing that we request, the way that we request it is that the claimant goes and gets the treatment, submits the bill to the carrier, and the carrier is going to reimburse its equitable share. Uh, that's usually the easiest way to do it. Um, that ensures that you're not overpaying for any treatment, and that also kind of controls the claimant's treatment because it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hassle for the claimant to go pay out of pocket and then seek reimbursement from the carrier. So that's the way we always argue for it if, if this becomes an issue. So the claimant will be responsible for the balance of the treatment, right? Um, if you ever get a claim for the claimant saying, well, you know, this is too much, I can't pay for this. Well, you got your money from the third party settlement. You should be using that money to, to do the payments. You're only liable for your share. You as a workers' comp carrier is only liable for your share. 
All right, so that wraps up. I'll just go back to the slide for a second. That wraps up um, our discussion on how to calculate exposure. Um, I think I've brought it full circle this year. We started out by talking about the goals of uh, multi-jurisdictional coordination. The main goal, the main purpose, the main reason we do it is to reduce ultimate exposure um, in the claim. Uh, as we know, these construction claims uh, can be very, very expensive, especially in the general liability side. The workers' comp side really drives the general liability claims, so we're talking um, how to uh, come up with strategies to defend these claims together. And because our goal is resolution, early resolution, um, low-cost resolution, we think that the, the coordination is really important. We've seen it play out in a lot of our cases. We do have a couple of cases where for <clears throat> any given reason, there's no coordination and it does turn out to be more exposure. And both the general liability side and the workers' comp side, and when there is a common owner, a common insurance carrier, they really, really feel the pain of this high exposure. So in calculating ex, uh, potential exposure, we do think it's important that you um, take into consideration all of these factors. Talk to your colleagues, talk to General Liability Defense Council. General Liability Defense Council, if any of you are watching me here today, talk to your workers' comp council, see what's going on there. Let's talk about the lien. The lien is very important. Are we going to do a full lien waiver or a partial lien waiver? That's extremely important in trying to come up with global settlement negotiations. Now, I know I kind of went through the Kelly and Burns quickly. If you would like um, more explanation, more details about it, send me an email and I can send you the written calculations that I have so you can take a look at how it plays out. Last year, I did a special Kelly and Burns webinar for uh, clients because it was requested. If that's something you'd be interested in next year, I can more, um, I'd be more than happy to schedule it into next year's training. So the next uh, webinar is going to be next month, January 3rd. It's going to be the Tuesday because we're off the Monday. Um, we are going to talk about uh, multi-jurisdictional coordination. We are going to do an introduction and why it should be done. Um, there are some fresh uh, new topics that are coming in January next year. Um, if you have ideas that, uh, for topics that you'd like me to focus on, please feel free to send them to me, preferably by the end of December as I'm planning the curriculum for next year. Thank you for joining me here today. Um, thank you for joining me all year long. If you've been coming month after month, if you're here the very first time, I hope to see you again next month. Have a happy holiday season. Be safe, be merry, and we'll talk again in January. See ya.